Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first, uh, first chapter of 1 Samuel as we begin our series through this book, Faithful Living in Fractured Times. We could talk about fractured times we're living in today. I thought maybe that applied also, of course, to the time of 1 Samuel. Here's our, t- our key concept today, find peace through prayer. Find peace through prayer. As we begin our journey through this book, I want to orient ourselves to the setting in which 1 Samuel is written. The events portrayed in 1 Samuel cover approximately a hundred-year period from the period of the Judges and Eli to the birth of Samuel through the troubled years of the reign of King Saul and then King David. In other words, in 1 Samuel, we see the nation transition in the way that it is governed away from intermittent judges throughout the land to a centralized king, uh, kingship and monarchy. 1 and 2 Samuel are actually one book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's not written by Samuel since when you consider the two, two books, First and Second Samuel together, he actually dies fairly early in the story. But it was most likely written after Solomon's death about 930 B.C. and named in Samuel's honor because of the impact that he had over the course of uh, these, this period of time. But to get a sense of the time in which uh, 1 Samuel begins to take place, I want to draw our attention to the last verse of the book of Judges. It says this in Judges 21-25, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. That's the context as we begin 1 Samuel. Now, in your Bible, the very next book after the book of Judges is the book of Ruth because the events of the book of Ruth take place in the Judges period. But in the Hebrew Bible, the very next uh, book after the book of Judges is the book of Samuel because these events also take place in the beginning in the period of the Judges. These were the days when the, uh, the book of Samuel's events start to unfold. And it's a time of anarchy. It's a time of violence. It's a time of lawlessness. Situation is bleak in the nation of Israel because they they don't have good leadership and they have an absence of devotion and worship of God. But in the beginning of 1 Samuel, we meet one family that is the exception to that. A family that is seeking to go against the drift of away from the worship of God, and it is the family of Elkanah. So just read with me uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, There was a certain man from Ramathane, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Elkanah. Elkanah and his family are swimming against the tide of his society. He was devoted to God and devoted to worship. Certainly not the only family like this, but the one that the author focuses on. Let's pick up a little bit more about that family. Go down to verse 3. It says, Year after year this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah is the focus uh, of our, our message today. Hannah's name means grace. 
But it seems like she was not experiencing grace. She's childless. And she's childless in a day and in a culture where barrenness was a personal tragedy for a woman. It brought about social disgrace. It brought about emotional depression and whispers about the judgment of God. In other words, what must she have done that God has closed her womb? Now, Elkanah, Hannah's husband, has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children. Penina had sons and daughters. And this was a continual source of controversy and bitterness between the two. And it all came to a head one year when the family went to Shiloh, the location of the tabernacle at this time, for the religious feasts and the sacrifice. Now, we're not told what feast this was, but this particular feast was a feast that included a sacrifice that included a celebratory meal, a feasting time. And this would have been a family highlight. It would have been something like our Thanksgiving turkey dinner, that kind of feel with the, with the family in a holiday mood. But we all know, don't we, from our own family thanksgivings that even though it's a celebration and it's a holiday, it doesn't always go well, right? I read an article about the time of our last Thanksgiving, and I clipped the title of it. The title was, How Not to Murder Your Family This Thanksgiving. I thought, wow, I better read this. And it went on to talk about the conversations that you need to avoid so that violence doesn't break out, the excuses that you need to prepare in advance just in case things go south. You know, sometimes things don't work out in family holidays. And during this particular holiday, Hannah's frustration and bitterness of soul comes to a crescendo, and it's set off by the taunting of Elkanah's other wife, Penina. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't just a misjudgment. It wasn't, whoops, shouldn't have said that, sorry. It was purposeful in order to irritate her. So let's talk for a moment about the whole having two wives thing, all right? We see polygamy in the Bible, but even though the Bible reports polygamy to us, the Bible does not support polygamy. This was never okay with God. It was never His design for marriage. And we see that when you operate outside of God's design, things go bad. There's hurt involved. And Hannah's heart is hurt in the rivalry that she has with Penina. And, and Penina mocks and Penina provokes her to the point where Hannah is weeping and will not eat even though she's at a feast. Now, Elkanah tries to smooth things over. He's try, he tries to make Hannah feel better because he, as the head of the family, had the right to distribute the meat of the feast according to his, uh, his plan. And so he gave, verse 5 tells us, that he gave Hannah a double portion of what he gave everybody else. Now, the most we can say about Elkanah is he's trying, right? He's trying. I don't think he gets an A for sensitivity here. It really, really it kind of ends up something like this. You know what? I know you don't have children. I know you feel bad about it. I see that you're, that you're upset. But how about a big brisket of meat? How, do, how about that? 
I mean, he's trying, all right? But more meat is not going to help. Plus, she's not eating. Did you notice that? More stuff is not going to help. It's not going to fill the hole in Hannah's heart because she must have been asking herself some deep questions. Am I being punished? What have I done to deserve this? Does God hate me? And even with these sorts of questions rolling around in her mind, what she does is she goes to prayer. She prays even as she's grieved. She's grieving the loss of the future that she wanted. She's grieving the fact that things aren't working out. And so she pours her heart out to God in prayer. And some of us can relate to this right today. Maybe this very issue today. Maybe by now you're saying, I thought we'd have children by now. Or maybe I, I thought I'd be married by now. Or maybe I thought I'd achieved this milestone in my life by now that I haven't been able to accomplish. I thought my life by now would have a better trajectory. I'm not getting the life I wanted. That's where Hannah was. I'm not getting the life I wanted. Maybe we grieve the fact that some issue has gotten us off track. That addiction that incarceration, that job loss, that financial setback that, that got me off track, cost me years of the progress that I thought I was going to have in my life, but I'm not where I want to be in my life. This is not the life I wanted. Now, when that sort of grief overwhelms us, the temptation is to pull away. The temptation is to isolate, to to remove ourselves from the fellowship where other people remind us of their own success. He's ahead of me. She's ahead of me. And so we kind of isolate it. We pull away. It takes courage when you feel that kind of hurt in your life to still come out and come together with God's people in fellowship and in church. It takes courage to do that. Because, but, it, but we must do that because that's where the healing is. That's where the blessing is. When you can pray and be prayed for, that's where we must be. And that's why the church needs to be sensitive to one another. We need to be open-hearted and we need to be faithful in our prayers. Here's where we need to be careful that prayer request time not turn into gossip time. Because what that does, it just causes people to isolate even more. I'm not going to mention anything. I'm not going to say anything. I mention that because this is what Hannah is doing. Hannah pulls away from the feast. She pulls away from the family. She's just all by herself, leaving, leaving that feast, refusing to eat, going to the tabernacle, and there she prays. But as she prays all by herself, Eli is watching. She doesn't know this. Let's pick up the reading in verse 13. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Go down to verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived, 
and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. God answers that desperate prayer. And sometime later, a baby, born, a baby boy is born. But let's go back to that prayer for a moment, because we skipped a little section there. And the section we skipped shows us that this is a prayer that contained a promise. Verse 11, And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Hannah is bitter as she prays that prayer. She's bitter towards Penina. She's bitter towards herself. She's saying, to, what's wrong with me that the Lord doesn't give me a child? And she pours out her heart in that emotional prayer. It's an honest prayer. It's a real prayer. She's not trying to pretend she's better than she is. And as she's praying, she's not even paying attention to her surroundings. She's feeling the shame because motherhood was at this point in time both a job and an identity. And she's not aware that Eli is watching. And I want you to notice this fact about Hannah's prayer because it's also a fact about your prayers. And that is, your prayers matter to God. When you think about it, prayer is a miracle, isn't it? The one true God who hung the stars in place and created all that is, is listening to us when we call out to him. I reposted something on social media a while ago that came to my mind as I was writing this message. And, and the, it was a quote. This is not my quote, but I, I, I love this quote. It said, if we could see what happens when we pray, we would never cease to pray. If we could see what happens when we pray, we would never cease to pray. It's so true. God is listening to us as we pray. Your prayers matter to God. But here's what happens. Sometimes the confidence of that leaks out of us. Sometimes we begin to suspect that our messages are not going through. That somehow we're, our, our prayers are lost in translation. Maybe we're filed under the wrong name or, or something. It's not happening. Maybe I'm just not doing it right. I meet people over and over again who say, well, I really don't know how to pray. If you know how to talk, you know how to pray. If you know how to think, you know how to pray. If you know how to worry, you know how to pray. Because it's simply talking to God. You don't even have to do it out loud. He hears the prayers of our heart. And it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to slip into King James Shakespearean English. No, no. Sometimes that actually gets in the way of it because it's simply being honest with God. Here is where I am. This is what I need. Help me. Puritan, the Puritans had a saying, and that saying was, pray until you pray. What it meant was, pray until you're no longer just checking boxes in your mind, but you're making a heart connection with God. Pray until you pray, because God listens to our prayers, and He cares about our prayers. And in the midst of this prayer, Hannah made a promise. She said, I am desperate enough for a child that if you were to grant me a son, I will dedicate him to the Lord and to the Lord's service for his whole life. I, in other words, you give me a son, and I'm going to give him back to you, God. He will serve you for his entire life. That's my promise. Now, the fact is, we're not always 
so true to our promises, are we? We often seem to forget even the small intentions that we have in mind as we make promises. Or we say, well, I, re I didn't really mean it, or I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I made that promise, doesn't count. Even on small things. But this is a big thing. It's a big promise. I'm, rem I'm reminded of a story about a businessman who was on a bumpy flight, and he was heading home on a business trip, and, that, and it really getting rocky, and it looked like the plane might go down, and there were nervous sobs all around that, that, the, the, uh, that plane in the cabin there, and uh, people were really kind of getting super afraid about the plane crashing, and that man, who was not much of a churchgoer, not much of a prayer, but he prayed, and he prayed out loud, loud enough so the people around him could hear it, and he prayed this, Lord, you get me out of this, and I'll go to church Sunday, and I'll donate $100,000 to the church. Well, lo and behold, the pilot was able to write that plane, and all of a sudden, they're going pretty smoothly. And the man next to him turned to him and said, Sir, I, I heard your prayer, and I just want you to know that I'm a pastor, and I'm here to collect on your promise. Here's my card with the address of the church, and you can make a donation through my website. And the man didn't even pause for a moment when he said, too late, Reverend, we're going double or nothing on the next flight. We don't like to always keep our promises, especially when they're big. Hannah's was a big promise. I'm going to set my son apart to serve the Lord for his whole life. In other words, he's going to grow up away from me, but in the tabernacle. It means he's not going to inherit from his father. It means he's not going to be present to carry on the family business or work the family farm. It means he's not going to be able to care for Hannah and Elkanah in their old age. Because I want you to see what Hannah is doing. She's not really asking for a normal experience of motherhood in this prayer. What she's asking for is vindication. She's asking for proof that God does listen to her prayers, that God is indeed loving her and will respond to her prayers. She's asking for a demonstration that her prayers matter to God and that he's listening in love. But she knows making this promise will mean she's not going to live like the rest of the mothers of the world, at least not with this son. And when Eli speaks the word of blessing, she accepts that as the end of the story in verse 18 tells us that she goes back to the feast, she eats, and her countenance is no longer downcast because she believes her prayers are going to be answered. And they are. Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived, gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Samuel can be translated as either name of God or heard by God, depending on, on the context. And so the second meaning is what, what, is what Hannah is talking about, heard by God. I have been heard by God. And so that little boy began to grow. And as he grew, Hannah knew that there would come a time when she would give him up. Now, she could have remained silent about that promise, right? Her husband had not heard the prayer or the promise. Eli had not understood the prayer or the promise. He thought she was just mumbling in her drunkenness. 
In fact, when Eli said that blessing over her, may the Lord God of Israel give you what you've been praying for, he didn't even ask what she'd been praying for. No details were shared there. But God heard the promise. And Hannah knew that God heard that promise. And based on that prayer and that promise, she was ready to give the child back to God. And so we see no reluctance later on. The child is weaned, little Samuel weaned, and in this culture that would, might have been three to f even five years. That was a, a long time in, in, in this setting. But after he's weaned, a period of time goes by, and then he's taken back to the tabernacle, presented to God to live there with Eli. Verse 27 says, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him, so now I give him to the Lord for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. Now our companion commentary that I mentioned a moment ago that, and you can purchase uh, speaks of this very situation and says this, it was both a sorrowful moment and a glorious moment. I'm sure her heart was heavy as she presented little Samuel to Eli in the temple. Most of us look at that situation and we say, how could she possibly do that? How could a mother take a small child and leave him with strangers? Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who we will learn were not very nice people. She does it because she's keeping a promise made to God. But she also does it as a statement of hope for Samuel. Because she understands that dedicating his life to the Lord's service, it means that this child, at least, will grow up in a God-centered and God-saturated experience. What he has in his life will be a life lived in the center of God's will. And as the, the culture of the time of the judges is spinning away from the things of God, she wants her son, at least, to be in the center of God's will, knowing that that's the best place to be. But let's circle back for a moment and talk a little bit about Hannah. Way back in verse 5, explaining her situation, it says this, the Lord had closed her womb. Her initial barrenness is attributed to the work of the Lord. Now, we're not told how it happened. We're not told if there was an illness or some physical issue that Hannah was dealing with. And obviously it was on her side of the coin since Elkanah's other wife had kids. But we are told explicitly it is the Lord's doing that Hannah could not have children up until this time. So we're left to wonder, why? Why was it that God brought her through this sadness? That God allowed this misery, if you will, to enter her life? And the only answer that fits is that God was working His plan through Hannah's sorrow. I'm sure Hannah would have been happy to have a brood of children. But God knew that this journey through barrenness would draw her near to Him. And through this desperate prayer, Hannah lays out her heart to God, and she sees when she does that, that God is indeed near to her, that God is indeed listening to her. And more than that, through this process, the nation gains a dedicated servant and a future leader. Because if she had not come to the place where she was ready to 
uh, pray that emotional prayer and make that shocking promise, if she hadn't come to that emotional place, Samuel would not be in the physical place where the rest of the story begins to unfold. But she cried out to God and she prayed and found peace. And God said yes to Hannah, but also in doing so, he said yes to the nation and the way history will unfold through Samuel's influence. The hymn writer says, we sang it, Oh, what needless peace we forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear when we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Even in the times of great struggle. One man said this, commenting on a serious illness he just went through. God put me flat on my back so that I would look up. And maybe God's doing that for you. The key is look up. Hannah worked, I mean, God worked that way in Hannah's life. Look up. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to live near to him. And he may answer our prayers that we call out in our times of desperation. He may bring an answer that is an abundant yes. I say yes to that prayer. But even if he does, the yes is going to come in his timing. Wait upon the Lord. Or he may say no. But if it's no, it's always a no that sounds like this. No. I have something more for you. I have something better for you. Draw near to God and you will find peace through prayer. In Hannah's story, as God responds to prayer, it's part of the big picture plan for the nation of Israel. In your story, as God responds to your prayer, it also fits in to what he's doing all around you. Because God is sovereign and that God listens to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the inspiration that we see in Hannah's story. Through, through her sadness, Lord, she was able to call out to you and find you right there listening. We pray, Lord, that we would have that experience as well. We pray for those things that we have given up on, Lord. Help us not to give up in prayer. Those people, maybe, that we've given up on praying for their salvation, that they might come to faith. Lord, help us not to give up. We know that you have perfect timing. Enable us to wait on you and to be faithful to bring our prayer concerns to you. And we rejoice that you listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.